During today's episode, I'm going to be telling you about a show I think you should check out. It's the Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other podcast. And come to think of it, I probably should have promoted that before Thanksgiving. But anyway, take a moment to hear what I have to say about them in the middle of the show, and then listen wherever you get your podcasts. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, as the hottest year in about 125,000 years or so begins to come to a close, we turn to two projects still in their infancy that have big plans to decarbonize our electricity generation on one hand and give us a bit more time to turn our climate futures around on the other. The first is a reinvigoration of the geothermal power industry with the hopes of scaling up globally, and the second is geoengineering, which aims to reduce the solar radiation hitting the planet to reduce devastating climate impacts while the world finishes up the work of going carbon neutral. Both ideas are a little scary. Either or both could be brilliant or disastrous. But the two things that are clear to me are that failure in the face of climate chaos will definitely be disastrous, and any ideas with a reasonable chance of helping deserve further study. Sources today include PBS Terra, Vox, a TED Talk from Jamie C. Beard, The Vlogbrothers, Volts, and Radiolab, and I will close the show today with an interview with climate activist Mike Tidwell to get a bit further into some of the arguments and counter-arguments surrounding geoengineering, and members will get an extended version of that interview. With all the bad and often terrifying news about climate change, doomsday may seem like it's just around the corner. But is it? There are electric cars, solar panels, and wind turbines everywhere. Still, we've wasted a lot of time arguing over if and why global warming is even real, let alone a priority. So how are we doing? Well, in the early 2010s, a set of emission scenarios called RCPs, ranging from very stringent climate policy to no climate policy at all, was developed to represent what warming could look like by 2100. To get an idea of how we're doing, we asked experts in the field which one of these scenarios looks most likely today. These scenarios were developed in the wake of the global financial crisis when emissions dropped for the first time in the history of many developed countries. But by 2010, they had begun to rebound along with the economy. And developing countries with enormous populations like China and India were planning massive investment coal plants to power economic growth for billions of people. If you had asked me 10 years ago whether I thought we would be in the place we are today, I would have thought that it would have been very unlikely. I would have thought that there's no way that that that's possible. So where are we today? And where are we going? The RCP origin story can help us understand. Back in the lead up to the IPCC fifth assessment report that came out in 2013, the energy modeling community developed four pathways, which are essentially four different possible warming outcomes at the end of the century. Now, the representative concentration pathways all come with a number. For example, RCP 2.6, RCP 4.5, or RCP 8.5. That number is essentially the 
imbalance in Earth's energy budget resulting from human influence on climate. And that number is expressed in watts per meter square. So in the case of RCP 8.5, this means that humans would have emitted enough greenhouse gases into the atmosphere to add an additional 8.5 watts per meter squared of solar radiation to the climate by 2100. And considering how many square meters are on Earth's surface, that's a lot of watts. This many, to be exact. Each of the RCP levels projects an estimated average of global warming. RCP 8.5 is close to 5 degrees, RCP 4.5 is just below 3 degrees, and RCP 2.6 represents the Paris Agreement goal of limiting warming to well below 2 degrees. RCP 8.5, with its associated 5 degrees of warming, is truly an apocalyptic scenario. It means game over, an existential threat. It models a world with no climate policy, and it's hard to argue that we had or have an effective climate policy either domestically or internationally. Because RCP.5 was the only one of the RCPs run with no climate policy, a lot of people started referring to it as business as usual, or in a world without climate policy, we'll have you know five degrees of warming. Emissions were just increasing year after year after year. There was the Kyoto Protocol in 1992, and it was widely considered to have been a failure. It really seemed feasible that we could end up on a pathway where coal use would continue to expand, where we would continue to prioritize sort of fossil fuel economic growth uh, throughout the remainder of the century. And a real problem seemed to emerge with reducing emissions. So far in the 20th century, increasing carbon emissions had been correlated with increasing gross domestic product and even reducing poverty. China's emissions were growing very fast along with their economy. And even with all the problems associated with rapid development, they were lifting citizens out of poverty. Other developing nations hoped to follow their lead and coal was the fuel of choice. Could the developed world comparatively rich after more than a century of burning fossil fuels really ask them to give up on coal? And that's when something very important changed. In the 2008 global financial crisis, the emissions of many developed countries did what they had always done. They followed the economy, downward this time. But then economies rebounded. After a brief uptick, the emissions of large carbon polluters like the US, EU, and Japan surprisingly continued to fall, even in a world with no functioning climate policy. And GDP continued to rise. We're not in business as usual anymore, or at least business as usual has changed. So what exactly changed? And should we still call RCP 8.5 business as usual? You know, RCP 8.5 is very much a world dominated by coal. Uh, by 2100, global coal use has increased sixfold above 2010 levels, uh, and global emissions have tripled. In the real world, global coal use has been flat, if not slightly declining, since 2014. Uh, you know, clean energy costs have fallen dramatically. Solar is 90% cheaper. Uh, in the last decade, wind is 66% cheaper. Batteries are 90% cheaper. You know, electric vehicles are about 14% of new vehicle sales globally now, and upwards of 20% in places like China and Europe. Uh, and so, you know, we're having an energy transition that was not accounted for in these sort of worst case scenarios a decade ago. Siever described this transition as one where activists, advocates, and even scientists push for emission reductions. 
No one got exactly what they wanted, but there was just enough government and society support to create a tailwind for innovators, even while the U.S. was busy pulling out of international agreements. You can't really dis disentangle sort of state policies from real acceleration in private sector clean energy. It was actually because of early uh, subsidy programs in Japan, in Germany, and in China in particular uh, that really uh, so helped fill in the gap between what was economically feasible and sort of what needed to happen. This is all extremely good news. And we're no longer in a no climate policy world, at least not entirely. In 2015, the Paris Agreement was signed, creating voluntary benchmarks for countries to meet in order to stay well below two degrees of warming or RCP 2.6. However, Almost no countries are actually on target to meet their benchmarks, and the four largest emitters have a long way to go to even get close. So at this point, RCP 2.6 is also not very likely. And so that's the reason why we think now that the world is probably headed toward a bit under three degrees under current policies and, and sort of technological development, rather than, you know, close to five degrees where some people thought we were headed. But even if two degrees of warming is still hugely ambitious, isn't it cause for celebration that we've come so far from the old projections of five degrees? You know, it's probably not literally the end of the world. I think humanity could survive in a world of three degrees, but it's not a world we want to leave to our children. Indonesia has the world's largest proven nickel reserves. Most of them are found here. So is a large concentration of the country's nickel processing plants. A lot of this nickel supplies the steel industry, but most of the growth the industry has seen in recent years is driven by the demand for EV batteries. Demand that's predicted to skyrocket. To extract the nickel, the rocks have to be smelted at really high heats. And that energy is almost exclusively provided by coal-fired plants that spew greenhouse gases and pollute the air. Nickel is essential for a green future, but using coal-fired plants isn't actually necessary, especially in Indonesia. Indonesia sits along the Pacific Ocean's Ring of Fire, a stretch of hundreds of active volcanoes that sit on top of pools of hot magma. We only really see the immense power of this heat when it pierces through the Earth's surface. But when it's close to the surface, that magma also heats the water trapped beneath the Earth. That hot water can provide a continuous and renewable flow of energy called geothermal energy. To capture that energy, we need to drill down to reach underground water. Then hot water or steam rise up to a well. In a power plant, that hot water is often used to heat a different liquid that is then vaporized and used to turn a turbine to generate electricity. Meanwhile, the clean water extracted is funneled back into the ground, where the Earth's magma reheats it once again. And that fluid is recycled. So there are no uh, emissions of any gases to the atmosphere. In that sense, it's a completely green, uh, carbon-free energy source. Plus, it doesn't rely on the weather like wind or solar energy do. Indonesia is the second largest geothermal producer in the world. On the same island where coal-fired plants are powering nickel production, there's a plant tapping into geothermal power. There are about 20 active geothermal plants. There are also tens of sites explored for development. 
One of the biggest things holding geothermal back in Indonesia and other parts of the world is cost. And then once you've got evidence that there's a resource, the idea is then to figure out, you know, how big is the resource, how hot is the resource, and how much would it cost to develop that type of resource. Longer timeline, higher risk factor, and higher uh, initial investment costs are all things that make geothermal more challenging to, to, to put online. And while geothermal maps like this one can help identify possible hotspots, you never know what you're going to find until you actually drill. Over time, the hope is that geothermal exploration will become cheaper, more predictable, and so efficient that it'll bring the cost down. But it can be tough to change an existing industry, especially if there's a lot of money in it. Encouraged by Indonesia's push to attract foreign investment and deregulation of environmental protections, Chinese companies have invested or committed about $30 billion to nickel plants in Indonesia, particularly in Morawali, where new coal-fired plants like this one are being built to power the investment. For people like Asvina, the fact that geothermal doesn't produce emissions or air pollution could make it the solution they are looking for. Because if nothing changes, they might have to leave their homes. Today, geothermal plants are mostly confined to volcanic areas. But our EV batteries are made of metals and minerals from around the world. And about 60% of the energy we use to process them comes from fossil fuels. There's enormous potential for cleaner EV battery production in all these yellow and red regions if we dig deeper and find ways to tap into the underground heat, whether there's underground water or not. Like every new resource, the work we do to harness it requires careful consideration. How do you preserve parklands and how does that coexist with geothermal development? The other issue that seems to come up a lot when I read about geothermal is um, seismic activity. Most of the geothermal-induced seismicity that occurs is very low-level seismicity, but the goal is to not have significant seismicity that could cause damage and uh, distress to local communities. The challenges are to make these, these environmentally, socially, and economically viable. And that's a very important challenge, especially if we think of geothermal as a solution to clean up the supply chain that powers our green energy. Because all too often, it's poor and marginalized communities who live next to power plants, smelters, mines, factories, pipelines, waste plants, as we move towards a better future, it's important to make sure it isn't just green, but fair. We have engineered geothermal systems, or EGS. In this concept, several wells are drilled at the bottom of the well. The rock is fractured. It creates a reservoir under the surface. Think of it as a pot where you boil your water underground, right? You send a fluid down, it percolates through the fractures, it comes back up really hot, and we use it for all sorts of interesting and important things, like heating buildings directly, or we can run it through a turbine to produce electricity. Now, EGS can take a lot of forms. This is an area of intense innovation right now. You can engineer these systems in a variety of ways, but the basic concepts stay the same. Then we have closed-loop systems. Closed loops are pretty new. It's another really hot area of innovation. Same concept basic as EGS. You have one or more wells drilled. You create a reservoir underground. But in closed loops, instead of fracturing to create that reservoir underground, it's entirely drilled like a radiator in the rock. And they take many forms too, just like EGS. Check it out. 
you can see in closed-loop systems how useful it is to be able to turn and steer that drill bit, right? Totally enabling in terms of getting these concepts to work. Another really cool aspect of closed-loop systems, another fierce area of innovation right now, is what we're putting in these systems as the working fluid to harvest the heat. Most of the time, it's water. But what if we could optimize a fluid to perform better than water, so it heats up faster than water at lower temperatures than water? And the really cool thing about closed loops is the going candidate, right, one everybody loves right now to put in these systems to most efficiently harvest heat, is actually a substance that's the center of our climate angst right now. It's, a, it's around us in excess and abundance. It's CO2. Super cool. So then there's hybrids, not the cars. Geothermal hybrids. You take the best of both worlds, right? You get the increased surface area and heat that you get from fracturing rock. You combine that with a closed-loop well design so you can use that optimized fluid. The goal of hybrid systems is to extract the most heat, minimize drilling costs. So that's what's happening right now, a lot of innovation. It's really, really cool. But these concepts, none of them are without their technology challenges. But y'all... These are not moonshots. They are not moonshots. We are talking about making very incremental changes to existing technologies, methods, and techniques with an eye on more, hotter, and deeper geothermal development. And these also aren't just ideas. There are teams right now in the field demonstrating these concepts. Teams like Sage Geosystems, a team that I mentor, This is a well that they are demonstrating this summer in, get this, Texas. Not in Iceland, not on the side of a volcano, not in the Ring of Fire. This is a Texas pasture where you would never suspect the enormous geothermal resources that lie below. And this well is an existing abandoned oil and gas well that they have repurposed for this geothermal demonstration. If all goes well with this demonstration, by 2022, that is next year, they will have a geothermal power plant in Texas. There are dozens of examples like this right now in the field. These are all startups. They're out there proving geothermal concepts, new technologies, new drilling, the concepts that I showed you in the slides. We are in the midst of a geothermal renaissance. In the past 18 months, more geothermal startups have launched than in the past 10 years combined. If even one of these startups is successful at proving a scalable geothermal concept, we are literally off to the races in developing this massive, reliable, 24-7 clean energy source anywhere in the world. And by off to the races, I mean that, right? Like, we got to go. The clock is ticking, we need scale. It's going to be cute if it works, but we've got to have global scale. So how do we do that? It brings me to my proposition. So it turns out that there's an industry that is perfectly positioned to take us from the few geothermal power plants we have today to the hundreds of thousands that we need to meet demand. The industry that everyone loves to hate, who cares about the environment and climate, is that industry. To scale geothermal, what do we need to do? 
We need to efficiently, effectively, and safely drill below the surface over and over and over and over again. And who does that now? The oil and gas industry does that now. The oil and gas industry is a global, specialized workforce of millions, backed by almost 200 years of breakthrough technological innovation, all aimed at exploring for. Drilling for and producing energy from deep underground. You flip the switch, and you have green drilling. And oil and gas keeps its current business model, the business model that keeps them firmly rooted in hydrocarbons. Now, they're doing what they know how to do, which is exploring for, drilling for, and producing a subsurface energy asset. But what we're talking about here is a pivot from hydrocarbons to heat. A global workforce of millions, highly skilled and trained, doesn't need to be retrained. They can keep doing what they already know how to do, but this time around for clean energy. If we're able to pull this off and team up to do it, we are talking about the ability to meet world energy demand. We are talking about the ability over the next few decades to put more geothermal energy on the grid than we currently have in dirty energy. Geothermal energy at oil and gas scale. So I bet I know what some of you are thinking because I was that person too. Like I used to think it, and so I will tell you how I got from there to here. I used to feel that we just needed to let the oil and gas industry. Go away. So I, I'm a climate activist and a lifelong environmentalist, the kind that would have chained myself to a tree if I needed to, of that flavor. I grew up and got a job, became an energy lawyer, and then an energy entrepreneur. And entrepreneurship took me out into the field for product deployments, and I ended up living on drill rigs, and I had a complete epiphany. It was a total mind shift. Bias out the door, because I got to know many individuals in the oil and gas workforce, and y'all, that's grit. I mean, it is incredible grit. Those people are there for it. But I also got to know the amazing technological innovations of that industry, and what I've come to believe is those are assets. The workforce, the technologies—they are assets that we can leverage now. To solve climate change, so what I do for my job is I recruit oil and gas veterans to the cause of geothermal. If we want to turn the ship, we recruit the sailors. As promised, I want to tell you today about the podcast "Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other." We get the old adage about it not being polite to talk politics and religion because the loudest, most extreme voices usually take all the oxygen out of the room. That's where talking politics and religion without killing each other comes in. Each week, they bring in a diverse array of elected officials, faith leaders, and some of the best journalists in the country. Many of the guests are recognizable public figures, but others are regular folks, just like the host Corey Nathan. I often get asked for suggestions on shows that can present alternate points of view without just promoting anger, vitriol, and irrationality, and this is one of the few that fits that bill. 
So if you want conversations with more nuance, civility, and even a little bit of fun, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Get it wherever you get your podcasts or visit politicsandreligion.us. First, let's define the term. What is geoengineering? The definition is controversial. But broadly, it's any time you take an action to intentionally change the systems of planet Earth. More specifically, these days when we talk about geoengineering, we're almost always talking about the amount of heat in the system. There is other geoengineering, like if you wanted to restart an ocean current, if you wanted to change ocean acidity, if you wanted to decrease the amount of storms, all those things would be geoengineering. Now, importantly, intent does matter, because if it didn't, then the last hundred years of burning fossil fuels would all be geoengineering. We would have been engineering the planet to get warmer. But it wasn't engineered. It was accidental. We did it for other reasons, and so it's not geoengineering. It's just an oopsie. It was initially an oopsie. It's not really an oopsie anymore. Now it's like a stop hitting yourself kind of situation. So these days we're mostly talking about intentional actions taken to decrease the amount of heat in the planet Earth system. And importantly, there are lots of different ways to do that. We talk about geoengineering as if it is one thing, and it is not. Like, already we are doing some geoengineering. We paint roofs white. And that is like a main benefit of decreasing the air conditioning bills for those buildings, which also decreases energy consumption. But... Additionally, it does reflect some amount of energy back to space. Not a measurable amount, but that's part of the reason why we do it. So, painting roofs white is geoengineering. But heading up the ladder of complexity and impact and controversiality, here's an incomplete list of other geoengineering things. High albedo crops, like crop plants that are more reflective and lighter colors could make the planet more reflective. Ocean mirrors could reflect sunlight back to space. Marine cloud brightening would seed clouds over the ocean, reflecting more light up. High altitude cloud thinning would thin the wispy cirrus clouds that actually do a better job of trapping heat in the system than reflecting it back to space. And finally, stratospheric sulfur injection would mean putting a ton of sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere because those sulfur particles are good at reflecting light and they'd stay up there for a long time. Each one of these has advantages and disadvantages. And as we went down that list, we got more impactful and scary. Like high albedo crops would have a small and mostly local and temporary reversible effect, whereas stratospheric sulfur injection would have a large and global and long-term effect. Now, the argument in favor of doing these things, and each one of them is a solar radiation management technique. That's the term we use for managing the amount of the sun's energy that gets trapped in the system. The reason why we do that is because the heat is a big part of the problem. It's not the only part of the problem. Like, ocean acidification would not be helped by any of these things, and that's also a big problem. But the amount of heat in the system already is making life harder on the planet, and that's just going to keep getting worse decade by decade for a while. And honestly, we don't know exactly how much worse it's going to get. And in fact, that is another vote in favor of doing geoengineering research. It could be that things get worse than we expect, faster than we expect, and it would be nice to have a tool in our back pocket just in case we need it, even if we don't want to use it, even if we're not sure if it's going to work or we don't understand all the harms it's going to do. The arguments against are many and they are varied and I have sort of different feelings about them personally. And I'm going to give them to you as I understand them. And this is going to be biased. First is this is going to be good for fossil fuel companies because they're going to do a lot of this work, whether it's like moving carbon around or it's doing all the chemistry that's necessary to do geoengineering. I don't care. I, look. I want to be on the record. I do not care who gets rich saving the planet. I would give the guy I hate the most in the world all of my money if I knew for sure he could fix this problem. I would hate it. I would hate to. I'm thinking of who it is. I would hate giving him all that money, but I'd do it. I might even say nice things about him afterward. 
Maybe. That would be harder, honestly. But relatedly, number two, this would be good for fossil fuel companies because we'd just keep burning fossil fuels forever if we didn't have to worry about the heat. If we could manage the heat, then we'd just keep burning. This doesn't worry me that much because I just think it's wrong. I recognize that there are people who are like this, who are like, we should just spend the money to do the geoengineering and not change anything. But ultimately... Renewables are just better. I would be more worried about this if the cost of solar and wind and batteries hadn't gone down by like a thousand times since I graduated from college. But they have, and already in most ways, they are better than fossil fuel infrastructure. And I think 10, 20 years from now, they will be way better than fossil fuel infrastructure. And we just won't use fossil fuels because they're worse. Now, onto the things I find more compelling. Number one, this is going to be, by definition, a trolley problem. What do I mean by that? I mean that if you're trying to do something that's going to help the whole planet, there will be areas of the planet that are harmed. The scientists I've talked to are quite uncomfortable with this. They understandably do not like the idea that they might be put into a position where they'll be asked to advise on whether we should take an action that will, like, save a million lives, but actually cause the deaths of thousands of people. And this is, like, not abstract. Now, for clarity, we already do this with accidental release of carbon dioxide all the time. Not accidental, incidental. We make decisions here in America to produce carbon dioxide, and that's going to have a negative impact on the world, and it will result in death and suffering. It's not a comfortable idea, but it's a real idea. But we're not doing it on purpose. We're doing it so that we can go visit our family in Indiana. It matters when you're doing it on purpose, and part of me thinks it shouldn't matter, but it does. So say, like, low-level example, you just do some marine cloud brightening. You're just making it so some low-level temporary clouds are over the oceans, and that increases the amount of sunlight being reflected to space. But maybe the water that's forming clouds there now would have formed clouds over land and fallen as rain and you're creating a different rain pattern and those people's crops fail so they don't have the income they expected they don't have the food that they expected and there's a fan so yeah trolley problem uncomfortable now we do that nationally all the time like when we say we're going to shut down a coal-fired power plant or we don't want as many coal-fired power plants that has negative impacts on people but we do it because it has positive impacts on more people but that's very different when that's one country making decisions for itself than if it's one country making decisions for another country which leads me to the second thing that is a good thing to point out actively doing geoengineering could cause War. So say one country is taking actions that's making it better for the people in that country, but it's resulting in less rain falling or flowing into another country, and that country has instability because of that. They're not going to like each other. And that feels intentional and different in a way that having like the US and China burn a bunch of coal and then having a global impact doesn't. And I'm trying to get comfortable with the idea that the way that it feels matters. Uh, because the way that it feels matters. Third, if we did it for a while and then suddenly stopped, that's very scary. So basically, if we're doing this radiation management, the amount of heat that would be in the system, if we weren't, is going up and up and up, but we're getting that heat out of the system through radiation management. If one day through an accident or a policy decision or the fact that like one country was doing it and the other countries were like, you need to stop, if suddenly it all stopped after having done it for a while, Climate models don't like that. That could result in, like, a very chaotic series of events for the planetary system. There's even a term for it. It's called termination shock. That's scary both practically and because the term. That's just a scary term. That's a good one. Neil Stevenson. Next on the list, Miriam really drove this point home to me and helped me understand it. 
This isn't a thing that should be done unilaterally, but it is a thing that could be done unilaterally. It's inexpensive enough to do some pretty large-scale geoengineering that a single country, and not even a big one, could start doing. Also, it's totally possible that the countries doing that would be the ones who created the problems and might be doing it without regard for local impacts that would happen. So you want to do this in a way that involves, ideally, all of the countries kind of coming together and reaching some sort of agreement. And in a complicated system like the Earth and complicated idea like geoengineering, that sounds very hard. Uh, and almost like it literally couldn't happen. But maybe it could. Like, we've done diplomacy on big, hard things before. Next, and this is the second most compelling of all of these arguments to me, we actually don't understand this stuff that well yet. Miriam was talking about how, like, of all the variables in climate models, the things that, like, increase the error bar the most is actually aerosols. So, like, the effect of particles in the air reflecting light back to space. That's a lot of what we're talking about in geoengineering, and we don't understand yet very well the mechanism of how that works and how it, much it does what it does. And this isn't just about, like, energy out, energy in. If it was just energy out, energy in, then we'd understand it. But what it's also about is how it's going to affect the climate system as a whole. If we do stratospheric sulfur dioxide injection and it decreases the temperature of the planet by a degree, that would be amazing. But what if it also dried up the monsoon season in Southeast Asia and then hundreds of millions of people are now food insecure when they were not before? If that's a thing that might happen, you don't want to do that. Which leads me to the last most important thing on the list of reasons to be very cautious about geoengineering, which is we just got one planet. This is the only one. We're already messing with it. And that's really scary. And to solve the messing with it problem by messing with it is understandably terrifying. And I'm like, okay, so we got to understand it better. And Adam makes a great point, which is that in order to do an experiment that actually will tell you about the potential impacts of geoengineering, you kind of already have to be geoengineering. I had been confronted by a, a lot of really sort of apocalyptic we are reaching the end doomsday prepper kind of people on tiktok having a panic attack for the last hour um who were looking at the temperature of the north atlantic ocean unprecedented warming and it was hotter than it had ever been ever been in recorded history and things are only getting worse it's not good that the holocene extinction the sixth extinction event is probably starting now i'm going to explain this with a visual aid. and all of these tiktokers are pointing to this one chart and here i can show it to you right here oh you just shared it to me okay yeah okay so it's basically a graph of the the sea surface temperatures in the North Atlantic right. over the last couple of decades. It's kind of a pretty graph, yeah. Yeah, it's a bunch of squiggly blue lines going up and down, and that's sort of the seasonal change. And then you can see the averages going up over time. But then there's a red line, which is this year, mm -hmm. and that line is creeping up, 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 and then it has a spike. Sudden red. Uh oh. Yeah. Yeah. And that line is like way above the average, even the seasonal ups and downs. It's not even close. Like, the the high jumper has cleared the pole. Yeah. Yeah. And this spike is happening over the course of months or weeks or... I think it's days. Days? Oh. An existential threat to everything we know. So all the TikTokers are basically like... This is it. It's happening now. This is us falling over the cliff. We're falling over the cliff. Figure out your relationship with Jesus Christ. 
And are you watching this stuff literally like while you're getting chemo? Yeah, I probably didn't see it like during the moment when the chemo was going into my body, but certainly during the times when I was... That does when people doom scroll It's just picturing like... (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, um, so I'd seen this and... Are we all about to die? You may have seen this graph. Uh, if you haven't, I'm sorry. I'm the one. And Hank decides to hop on TikTok himself. Like I, I made a little series that was like trying to like contextualize it. We're not there yet. We're not anywhere close to there. Yet. At the time I was seeing and I was like, I don't like it. Probably just some kind of natural variation where it's like cooler than average right now in some parts of the world. And it's hotter than average in other parts. And also we're entering on, on El Nino. So El Nino is just like a warmer climate time generally. And you take one little spot on the globe and blips happen. You know, there's natural variation across the earth. I don't know. That that doesn't mean we shouldn't be worried. Like, now is not the time to say, it, uh, hey, it's getting a lot warmer, but no big deal. Totally. And and to be clear, Hank takes this stuff very seriously. As a person who's been worried about climate change for the, my dad was the state director of the Nature Conservancy in Florida when I was growing up. So, like, we're a family of environmentalists. My mom's a sociologist who worked on sustainability. Like, and I'm like, I have a degree in environmental studies. Uh, like, I've been in this for a long time, and it's very scary. This is like, no, like, this is the biggest problem humanity has ever faced. But you know, there's sort of a debate. That's like, do we need to get people more scared about climate change or do we need to get people more hopeful about climate change? Because you go around a bend eventually where it's like there, there's nothing to be done and I will just be hopeless and sad. And I think a lot of people are there. Right. If you're too scared, you like tip into nihilism kind of. Yeah. And this is like, it's going to be like a bell curve of worry that we're all on somewhere. And in order to get like everybody to the appropriate amount of worry, we're always pushing some people to way too worried. And like, there's like not really too worried about climate change until and unless you give up on trying to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. So like, I'm so according to Hank, when it came to this temperature spike in the North Atlantic, his sense was that these people online were being Way too alarmist. There was a sort of a mathematics of gambling guy, um, which isn't really a climate scientist, as you might expect, who who was getting a lot of traction by tweeting about how this was a really big deal. And then he was getting like on the news. Huh. And so Hank thought maybe this is a moment to dampen rather than, you know, fan the flames. Able to act because that takes time. But also because keep I've the conversation focused on things that we might be able to do. Over the next week or two on my TikTok, I'm going to make some videos about the things that we are actually doing right now and will be doing in the future to help take care of this. So that is how Hank is spending this hot, hot summer, going through chemo, holding a candle for hope, battling climate nihilism. And then I was scrolling science news in bed late at night, like before (laughs) going to sleep. I can do. (laughs) Um, Yep. He comes across a link to an article that made him sit straight up in bed. Yeah. Um, it's like 11 o'clock at night. I have to get up at 730 in the morning and I'm like, oh, I'm going to read a lot right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> OK, so the thing he sees is this article in science. It's a write up of three recent studies. And what they found is that the spike in the north 
Atlantic sea temperatures, this like troublingly warming water. This year's spike. That one this we were talking about. This year's recent yeah. spike yeah. may have been caused by this thing, which is that a few years ago, the UN put into place some regulations that forced cargo ships to start burning cleaner fuel to, you know, reduce the pollution that they make. And that, doing that good thing, these papers said, that caused the water to get warmer. Yeah. Wait, so so they're saying that getting rid of pollution that you would think would make the problem better is actually, in this one spot for a while at least, making the problem worse. Right. How? All right, so let's go back to before this regulation, this change had happened, all these Big, hulky cargo ships are crisscrossing the North Atlantic, chugging along with their big smokestacks, puffing out big plumes of smoggy smoke. Cargo ships burn, like, the dirtiest oil. It's like the oil that's left at the bottom. Like that mayonnaise black mayonnaise Yeah, you have like, to, like, wah. heat it up yeah. before it'll even flow kind of oil. And so there's all this carbon dioxide going out into the air, of course, but there is also all this sulfur dioxide going out into the air. Okay. And that's horrible. Sulfur dioxide is bad for people. It's like it's bad to breathe. And then it also is also bad for the environment because it, it turns into sulfuric acid when it mixes with water and then it falls down to the earth as acid rain. So that's where acid rain comes mm, from. Which right. is which is why the UN wanted to regulate it. But it turns out that in addition to being horrible for human health and making acid rain, sulfur dioxide also does something else. It actually can seed clouds. As the ship goes by and it pumps the sulfur dioxide up, you can see, just like kind of a contrail that a jet would leave behind, you can see they're called ship tracks. Hank actually showed us a, a picture of this that was taken from, from space. These tracks are like so big. It just looks like giant zebra stripes over the ocean of just white. When there's the right amount of heat and water in the air, you get all of these extra clouds that you normally wouldn't get. Okay. And the clouds reflect the energy of the sun into space. So instead of hitting the water and heating up the surface of the ocean, it hits a cloud. You know, you could think of it just like a very thin um, umbrella. And then there's a shadow on the ocean. Which keeps the water at least a little bit cooler. So you, so suddenly you take that away, you burn cleaner fuel, and then it's like taking away the beach umbrella. You're suddenly just, you're the ocean, oh, and the ocean is getting blasted by the sun. Got it. It's not unanticipated. This is actually something that climate scientists have known about for decades, but it is non-intuitive. And what this means is that overall, we have not seen the actual full effects of the carbon dioxide. It's like the the warming from carbon dioxide has been worse than you thought up to now. It's just been sort of hidden by all the dirty clouds that we've had blocking light. Right. And if you get rid of that, you're going to realize just how bad it really is. Right. Yeah. Um, and that feels like, oh, things are, this is doomy. Like, I don't, this now like, seems oh, like a doom on a doom to me. Yeah, right? I agree. I feel like it's a double decker doom. Yeah. We're just going to burn. Like we're, I go to more to nihilism. I mean, I, I was, I found this very exciting and like fascinating. But not anchoring. He reads this study and sees a silver lining, a literal silver lining. In the smog cloud. A, a smog cloud that isn't there anymore. Right. The thing that excited me the most about it is 
we did it and then we undid it in order to make life better for people who are now not breathing that sulfur dioxide into their lungs. But now we have a chance to study what that looks like. He sees these papers and he's like, we have just done a pretty monumental experiment. Yeah. Because for decades, we had been letting these ships put out these polluty, smoggy smoke trails, which just so happened to act like umbrellas and shade the ocean. And now that we've taken the umbrella away, we can measure how big or small that cooling effect was. But then the broader the broader question is, can you then, if we were doing it before, and, it, and we know what the effect was, can you then find another better way to do it intentionally without putting the acid rain stuff, smoggy stuff in the air? Let's just briefly touch on the main subject of the of your latest report, which is just research, uh, advocating for research. You know, I come into this sort of like leery about doing <laughs> things like this that that we know so little about. But when I got into sort of reading about the kind of research we need, what's sort of remarkable is probably like two thirds of the research you're advocating is not even directly on doing these things. It's just understanding. What's in the atmosphere right now? Like, what are the risks of short-term rapid changes now? Just very basic climate science stuff that you would think we would already be researching. So, I mean, I think even sort of the most uh, uh, committed opponent of these schemes um, would agree that, like, it's crazy how little we know about this whole area of study. So maybe just, like... Talk about what, when you advocate for research, just talk about sort of the basics of what you're advocating for here. I mean, I think people will be a little bit shocked at how, that some of this stuff doesn't already exist. Well, thank you for that. I, you're exactly right, because I think we were shocked, <laughs> you know, not coming from this field and just looking at, kind of looking at it as an information problem. And the problem you want to do is you want to be able to project and evaluate the risk of what, what the climate system is going to do. So I'd really like to know, be able to project with some confidence, you know, how the Earth system is going to respond to this warming, you know, over the next 30 years. And then what it would look like if you change the things that are influencing it, either in the warming direction, the greenhouse gases, or in the cooling direction, what scientists call aerosols, these particles. So, you know, we're coming at it saying, okay, we, were, we just want to help set, set us up to do that problem and evaluate what it looks like, you know, if you are introducing aerosols in different ways and how does that improve or not, like the risk profile of what's happening. And so then we bump into, you know, these gaps and what's, you know, the problems that we can't do in the models and a lot of them center right in the atmosphere that the models don't represent all the phenomena that are happening in the atmosphere very well, mm-hmm. and that we don't have the, the observations that we need to improve them. You know, it's, it's like insane. It's like five, five, six decades now of talk about climate change and talk about all this, but we still, on some very basic levels, are just not watching what's happening in the atmosphere. 
I think people assume that, you know, it's like, hey, we've got this, right? And you hear, you hear there are these satellites, like, and you hear the scientific studies coming out that are projecting what climate is going to do. We have satellites looking at everything. And then you sort of dig under the hood. And that's where, you know, solar radiation management just as a, an analysis problem. Because, you know, what some of the scientists in our circles have said is like, people want a higher standard of evidence for this. So they're saying, well, you need to be able to tell us what will happen and what the impacts will be. And we should be having that standard of evidence for what greenhouse gas is doing (laughs) and what these other aerosols are doing. But we haven't. And so we get we get in there and say, okay, if you really want to do this problem, here's what you need. So to give you an example, for the very top candidate for this is putting particles in the stratosphere. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to project what will happen, you first need a baseline of what's in the stratosphere. And it turns out we don't have that. We, you know, we can't characterize what's in the stratosphere currently. So then it's very hard to do that problem. And so the first thing that we did when we started talking to members of Congress and working with NOAA is just to say, we have this problem of having a baseline of what's there, which is a really important problem to solve if you want to know if somebody else is adding material to the stratosphere if you want to know what it will do. And so that, that was our starting point. And it's similar kinds of things now where, you know, even in the low coddler, we're working on a program to put instruments on ships, like the current ships that travel, that would just be taking atmospheric readings of that, you know, low atmosphere so that you would have a baseline and you'd be able to help the models and even the satellites interpret what's going on. Right. So just gathering more data about what's actually in the atmosphere. So we have a baseline because, you know, one thing the the report emphasizes over and over again is that it doesn't really make sense to talk about the risks of doing these things in isolation. It's always what is the risk of this intervention versus the risk of not doing this intervention? Like what, what are the risks we're facing as a baseline against which we are measuring the risks of this intervention. And we just don't know. That's what's wild to me. We just don't know what the current risks are. So we, we're, you know, we can't, there's no way to make a informed risk judgment because you don't know the differential. That's right. And, and we haven't really invested in it, which is, a, you know, another quite eye-popping reality. <laughs> it's wild. Like globally and in the United States, climate research investments have been relatively flat for decades. That is wild to me. I know I, yeah. every time I read that, I, I read that statistic periodically. And every time I run across it, I'm shocked all over again. Like all this talk, all this international action, all this agita and angst. And we're not spending any more on climate research than we were two decades ago. This really baffled me coming into this. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't understand it. And I sort of learned like there was quite a long period of time where, where there was an orientation that I'm kind of sympathetic to, which was we know what we need to know, we need to reduce emissions. And so if you think about it as like two sides of an equation, and you, you know, you look at the reduce emissions side of that equation and you just focus everything on that, and you say, don't spend your energy on figuring out what's gonna happen if it gets warmer, because we're not gonna let it get warmer. <laughs> and and really that combined with a lot of other pressures on climate science. You know, climate science has been in, you know, lockdown mode. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I, I can still remember like 10 or 12 years ago. It's brutal. Under siege. Yes. Terrifying. But 
now we're seeing these extremes and we've had a flat level of investment in inside that flat level of investment in climate research in the part that looks directly at the atmosphere atmospheric observation and atmospheric basic science has actually declined in real terms oh my god that is mind-boggling it's heartbreaking <laughs> so and, and that's the fulcrum for everything we need to know about you know what's happening and how we evaluate what we're going to do so the good thing is like it represents an opportunity if we can improve it and i'll just finish by saying climate research investments in the united states are about three and a half billion a year and that's everything on on the that side of the equation. And if you compare that to, you know, the 55 billion we, we spent on the three most recent storms. Yes. <laughs> um, and even the big money that's gone into these other programs. What we're saying is, hey, to invest an additional 60 or 70 percent in that and bring it up to five and a half, six billion a year, that seems reasonable. We've just heard clips today, starting with PBS Terra giving us the current state of our best climate predictions. Vox looked at geothermal plants through the lens of manufacturing EV batteries. Jamie C. Beard gave a TED Talk in 2021 explaining her work to convert the oil and gas industry into the geothermal industry. The Vlog Brothers described some of the highlights and lowlights of geoengineering. Volts in two parts looked at the prospects of studying geoengineering solar radiation management to stave off climate impacts, and Radiolab told the story of some of the accidental geoengineering we've already been doing with the sulfur dioxide coming from cargo ships. Now, to finish up, I want to introduce you to Mike Tidwell to talk through a few more concerns about geoengineering. Mike has been a climate activist for around 20 years and runs the Chesapeake Climate Action Network. He has done a lot of good work in that time, but he's also made the questionable decision to hire me way back in 2007, so his record is definitely not spotless. And it was from Mike, either that year he hired me or the next year, 2008, that I first heard about the concept of geoengineering. So he's clearly been thinking about this for a long time, which is why I had him in the back of my mind as we were making this episode and why I wanted to get his personal take on some of the arguments and counter arguments for and against doing geoengineering research or even possibly implementing those ideas. Spoiler alert, he is in favor of studying it, so I just wanted to ask him to explain his reasoning. He started by describing the sense of urgency we need to feel about all potential climate solutions. The major things that I have tried to pay attention to over the last 20 years as a climate activist is, number one, how fast are we making the switch to clean energy? The good news is we're making that switch substantially. We really are, especially culminating with the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. We're going to see up to $1.7 trillion in clean energy investments over the next decade. It's just amazing. The problem is we waited too long to get there. As Bill McKibben says, winning slowly is the same as losing. So we're winning, and that's encouraging, but with each passing year, especially in the last five years, 
the news on accelerating climate impacts, the degree of warmth, the rise of sea levels, etc., has become startling. And it's clear that the science is telling us we've waited too long to begin to make the transition to clean energy. So if we've waited too long, therefore what? All the things that we're seeing now across the planet, James Hansen has predicted. And now he is saying our most accurate prophet of climate change, James Hansen, our top climate scientist, formerly at the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies. Dr. James Hansen has been saying the last few years and really shouting it from the rooftops this year that we have to not only switch to clean energy as fast as we can, not only do we need to try to sequester carbon and suck carbon out of the atmosphere as fast as we can, but we also have to reflect sunlight away from the planet, or at least we need to really study it in detail with billions of dollars put into experimentation and research to at least rule out the truly crazy stuff and focus on the stuff that we have a high confidence level will A, cool the planet, and B, do so with the least amount of negative consequences as best we can tell. I don't know if it's inevitable that we're going to do this. I'm not saying with complete certainty that I know we need to do this. What I believe, and I think what Dr. James Hansen and hundreds of his colleagues who signed a letter to this effect in February of 2023 are saying is we need to at least study it and have that emergency option available to us because the trends are depressing now and the warming is accelerating beyond most predictions now. 2023 being about to become the warmest year by far in the history of the planet, going back at least 125,000 years, blowing 2016, the last record year, out of the water. It is now time for us to begin seriously studying and considering a plan B that involves reflecting sunlight. I then asked about one of the major arguments against geoengineering, which is that it could potentially sap the motivation for society to continue to decarbonize our energy infrastructure. Like, well, if we're doing this and it's making climate change better, then I guess we don't need to actually reduce our emissions as much, right? There are those who are afraid that if you go down the path of trying to reflect sunlight away from the planet, you create a so-called moral hazard, that you create the circumstance where by taking that action, by using sulfur dioxide to reflect sunlight from the planet, and you're talking about reducing between one and two degrees the amount of sunlight coming into the planet. This is not a radical reduction. Volcanoes have done it in the past. But the idea is if you start doing that, then why stop burning fossil fuels? You'll just create an excuse to keep burning fossil fuels. That's the so-called moral hazard of solar geoengineering. There are several things to consider here. One is that the same argument can be applied to sequestering carbon to direct carbon capture, to trying to suck carbon out of the atmosphere. That too could have a moral hazard. I mean, why get off fossil fuels if you can just burn the coal, send the CO2 to the, ap- to the atmosphere, and then suck the CO2 out of the sky and bury it under the earth? So th- this issue of 
moral hazard applies to things that the IPCC has already embraced, i.e. carbon capture. But the biggest issue here is that there is no stopping the clean energy revolution. I mean, it's happening. We are winning too slowly, but we are winning. The transition is happening. I mean, when California and the European Union all declare that by 2035, they are not going to permit the sale of internal combustion engine cars in their jurisdictions, that's going to influence the whole world. I don't know why anyone would buy stock in ExxonMobil when the, it is certain that the cars that that oil would power aren't going to exist much longer by statute in much of the world. Um, and that's just cars. I mean, look at the progress we're making in solar. The price is, I mean, utility scale solar with battery storage is the cheapest form of energy in the history of energy. And it's here today being deployed. There is no stopping that. That genie is out of the bottle. So I'm not concerned about the moral hazard when it comes to solar radiation management. I'm not concerned that it's going to stop the clean energy revolution. It cannot. And then there are additional arguments for why even if you can cool the planet artificially, why you, you should not continue to burn fossil fuels because it is acidifying the oceans. We have ocean acidification that could take down human civilization on its own. So there are many arguments to get off fossil fuels. Next up is the rogue nation concern. It was said during the show, solar radiation management, quote, isn't a thing that should be done unilaterally. But it is a thing that could be done unilaterally, end quote. And so there's this fear that just studying it could help boost the associated engineering to help make it happen. And then even if all the scientists are super cautious and advise against anyone doing anything rash, their work could be used by desperate people, likely those being most adversely affected by climate impact, or maybe some corporation with the idea that this is the way to go, and so they're just going to take it upon themselves to do it. Anyway, that someone might act unilaterally using the scientist's research, which would be dangerous for us all. So maybe it's too dangerous to even study. The other issue that people bring up when it comes to reflecting sunlight from the planet is that if you start to study it, then you create enough knowledge for rogue nations, perhaps prior to some international agreement to do this in an orderly, reasonable way, some rogue nation that's under particular climate stress might obtain that science and technology and do it on their own in an act of desperation. And I would argue that rogue nations can do that today <laughs> because honestly, the blunt technology needed to try to cool the planet already exists. I mean, you could use artillery, you know, high elevation artillery shells to send sulfur dioxide into the lower stratosphere. Now, you could use converted aircraft to do the same. Individual countries can do it today. China could do it. The United States could do it. Brazil could do it. And it won't be long before, you know, some coalition of Pacific Island nation states could probably do it. So it's because it's so easy now that we really ought to study it and, and rule out the really crazy technology and try to settle on what might be the highest probability success technology, spend 10 years 
really bringing the smartest people together, not saying this is inevitable, not saying we're definitely going to do it, but saying it looks like this sure might be necessary. Let's really study it carefully. Let's have an international agreement that no one's going to use this technology until this International Academy makes its recommendations by some fixed future date, and then let's try to enforce those rules. So I think the rogue nation fear is already here. And if you want to reduce the likelihood that a nation could go rogue on this, you're better off studying it as an international community and trying to come up with international rules for its use. And finally, I asked about one of the stickiest problems, which is the need for international cooperation and good governance over the course of several decades to properly manage solar radiation through geoengineering, with the risk of termination shock, which we heard described in the show, if we can't keep things running smoothly. And no one listening right now needs to be reminded that both national and international politics is a bit on the chaotic side right now. Maintaining Global political stability is certainly a challenge right now in 2023, no doubt. And those who argue that it is nearly impossible to conceive of an orderly international body and decision-making process to govern the reflection of sunlight away from the planet is a reasonable concern for sure. However, We have to do difficult things in this century. We have to overcome amazing obstacles. We have to deal with the warming and the politics at the same time. And to give up on either one of those, to say, oh, there's too much warming, there's no hope, let's just burn coal and forget about it and take what may come, that's absurd. To point to political instability and the rise of fascism and All the other issues that we see in the world, including multiple wars, and therefore throw up our hands and say we can't ever have a stable political system sufficient to save ourselves from runaway warming is also absurd. We're going to have to try to accomplish these difficult things. And I would just, speaking of the politics, you know, the Biden administration's Office of Science and Technology put out guidelines in June of 2023 for the possible study and experimentation of solar radiation modification, reflecting sunlight from the planet. They don't embrace it. They don't say it has to happen, but that what they put out were guidelines to say, if we study this, if we experiment with this, these are some of the considerations and guidelines that scientists and politicians should adhere to. And you can find that online. It's readily available. It came out in late June of this year. What I took away from that report was an approach that they called risk versus risk management when considering whether to study and possibly deploy solar radiation modification techniques. And what they basically say is that attempting as an international community through science to reflect sunlight away from the planet to therefore relieve global warming while we get off of clean energy is terrifying and it is risky. Yes, it is risky. There are risks involved. But what they ask is, is it risky compared to what? 
<laughs> and the what is runaway climate change, the kind of unbelievable warmth that we've seen in 2023 times three or four or five orders of magnitude down the road, which means synchronized global breadbasket collapse, you know, agricultural problems, sea level rise in the meters, not in the feet, et cetera, et cetera. We have to compare the risk of studying and potentially deploying solar geoengineering versus the risk of not doing it. And I think it's a study worth engaging in. I think it's a conversation worth having. And the risk also applies to our politics. Is it risky to try to assume that we can bring the world's countries together to try to have a decision-making process on solar radiation modification? Is that risky? Yes, of course it is. Is it going to be fraught with problems? Of course it will be. But compared to what? (laughs) Compared to not trying and not talking and not trying to appeal to our mutual common interests, to not bringing China and the United States together? to really consider all possibilities to preserve agriculture. I think that we can't just see reflecting sunlight as some inherently dangerous scenario without considering not doing it. And I think that's what the Biden administration has said in their report. And it's a conversation we need to have. And if we're going to believe James Hansen, who's been right on these climate issues and the major crossroads and forks in the road over the last several decades, James Hansen has been correct in his predictions, his diagnoses on the problem. And I think he's correct today in saying the world's governments must begin studying this issue of how to reflect sunlight away from the planet and must be prepared to hold it as a plan B in case it becomes necessary. Thanks to Mike for taking some of his very minimal free time that he was spending with his family on a holiday weekend to talk us through all of that. And now I'll just finish with this thought about the debate, not not over deploying a geoengineering strategy, but just over studying it. I had this thought before talking with Mike, and then he echoed the same sentiment, which is that solar radiation management through sulfur dioxide in the stratosphere is so easy and cheap that it doesn't seem likely that a desperate rogue nation would need for research to go any further than it already has for them to think that they should give it a try. In fact, a geoengineering startup company in January of this year already started launching weather balloons to deploy sulfur dioxide. So the fear that doing more research may open the door for rogue entities is a classic case of closing the barn door after the horse is already bolted. So given that, I find it hard to take any arguments against further research very seriously. Because the best case scenario is that we do a bunch of research, learn a lot of great stuff, some of which will almost certainly be useful in ways we can't foresee, and then we'll never have to actually implement geoengineering of any kind Because maybe we'll have figured out scalable geothermal energy so that we begin to decarbonize faster than anyone dared hope. But failing that, by having done the research, we'll have given future generations one more tool in their tool belt that they can choose to use or not. As James Hansen, who we just heard a lot about, said, quote, We have no right to ban the right to search for a solution for the mess we created.
And so I absolutely believe that everyone has the right to withhold judgment on whether or not we should ever implement a geoengineering strategy, but doing the research to learn more about it, I can't help but come down on the side of saying, yes, we need to learn more. That is going to be it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in. I would love to hear your thoughts or questions about this or anything else. You can leave us a voicemail or send a text to 202-999-3991 or simply email me to j at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to our transcriptionist trio, Ken, Brian, and LaWindy for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who already support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support. You can join them by signing up today, and it would be greatly appreciated. You'll find that link in the show notes, along with a link to join our Discord community where you can continue the discussion. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com